The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Lady, don't take no shit. Insist on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak less of something worse. Singing, don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxuriously. Carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you've seen this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, the conundrum we find ourselves in for 2024's upcoming election cycle, we cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. All the clerks want to offer you help, all the folks compliment you style. A little children want to jump in your lap, girl, I want to do that myself. Our guest this week is a scholar, an organizer, and the co-president of Community Change. He is also the co-founder and co-chair of the Economic Security Project, an innovative social impact organization that has already shifted the national conversation about cash, economic power, and economic security. He is the co-host of the Deep Dive podcast on The Takeaway with Melissa Harris-Perry. You can find him as a commentator on MSNBC, NBC, CNN, BET, and just about everywhere. But we have him here today, and I'm so happy to have him on the pod, live and direct. So please welcome my friend, the homie, Dorian Warren. Hey, Dorian. Hey, Alicia. I am so honored to be on your podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so, so, so happy to be in conversation with you. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I've been waiting for this. All week long, trust me and please believe. I was like, ooh, Dorian's coming on. We got shit to talk about. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive in. Okay, so the Biden-Harris administration is very eager. And I understand this, right? They need some wins. So they are very eager to declare the pandemic a thing of the past. But whatever phase you think we're in, and I know Mm -hmm. right now you've got the damn rotas. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt that Miss Rona has changed our lives indefinitely. So tell me for you, in what ways has Miss Rona changed your life? Well, as you said, I, as we speak together right now, I am just now getting over the Rona. Finally caught me. And I will say I was fortunate enough to be prescribed Paxlovid. I'm not trying to shill for the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies, (laughs) but I raise that to say it made a huge difference for me, um, especially someone with a few underlying conditions. And you started by talking about the Biden-Harris administration. And I have to just say at the top, I'm actually furious that they are poised to end the emergency declaration about the around the pandemic. And here's why, Alicia, 
something like three to 400 people are still dying a day. We don't talk about it. The news media has moved on, but I'm sure you have friends and family. I have friends and family, folks that we have lost, mm-hmm. folks that are sick. My own brother, sister-in-law, nephew have all gotten it. They have long COVID and are still experiencing the effects of that. And so I'm just mindful of folks that I know who might not have health insurance or bad health insurance. In May, if there's no emergency, how are they going to get the appropriate treatment and frankly drugs if they were to contract COVID? Um, Right now it's free. That's another thing about this administration. They made the drug free, but they haven't told anybody that, mm-hmm. right? So what happens for folks, for everyday people, for ordinary folks who will likely contract the virus because it's still contagious? And I was super careful. Mm-hmm. So I'm just suggesting that we need a new strategy. It is still an emergency. We are still in the pandemic. And we have not yet redesigned and restructured our public health systems. We still have a 20th century public health system. So that's all um, by way of, and you can hear my baby in the background. Mm. It's all by way of saying the pandemic, in terms of how it's changed my life, I just have to say, so we shut down the country in March of 2020. Um, At the time, my partner was pregnant. So we spent a lot of time together Um, (laughs) in that period in quarantine. My kid was born in October 2020 before the vaccine was widely available. So we were basically quarantined in our apartment. Um, it's actually when I started that podcast with our dear friend, Melissa Harris Perry. Yes. And so it's been an interesting, you know, I feel like I, I have a COVID kid in a sense. Um, not that she was directly, she had, thankfully, she has not contracted the virus. But in terms of her first year of life, she was basically in quarantine. She basically had, did not socialize with other kids until we got her into daycare. Um, last year. So there's just a lot of things that have had to change. She And I think a lot about her of like, what seems normal for her is not normal, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? In terms of how we grew up. Yeah. And so the last thing I'll say is I'm still working remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, my organization went to a remote first um, strategy. And that means a lot of Zoom meetings and a lot of Zoom fatigue. And I'm getting back on the road now. I think that's actually how I contracted it. But it's just a different way of working than I think what we were used to before 2020. There is a lot of talk, and Joe Biden is right up at the front of this, honey, about bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle. But I think you and I agree for that to happen. Like, wouldn't somebody have to change their mind? (laughs) So I'm asking every guest who comes on the podcast to tell me a story about a time that you changed your mind. And what happened? I want you to think about something that like, you really deeply, deeply believed in. You were convinced it was right, but then your perspective changed. Oh, that one's easy because it's related to what you, how you just set this up. Mm. I would say in January 2021, not January 6th, we're going to come back to that, <laughs> but the inauguration. <laughs> I firmly believed that delivering actual relief and material benefits would lead to a political realignment like we saw in the New Deal. Let's call it deliverism. Because you mentioned say the union. I think we're going to hear a lot about this. And by the time folks hear this, the say you know, mm-hmm. the say the union will be over. But we're going to hear a lot about what was delivered. So there's this notion of deliverism. You know, I heard it from already in the previews from the president and his team. I've heard it from the minority leader in the House, Hakeem Jeffries. Deliver, deliver, deliver. 
And then, you know, I thought as the stimmies, the stimulus checks were rolling the out. Stimmies, honey. The child, the expanded child tax credit, which was one of my passion issues, which got money in the hands of parents, no strings attached, and reduced po- child poverty by almost half. We had the lowest mm-hmm. rates of black, brown, indigenous kids in poverty ever in history in six months. And then it went away. And there were some other deliverables that many of us pushed this administration to do from both the inside and the outside. All that to say, I was fundamentally wrong. I was wrong because just delivering stuff without a strong narrative and story and without organizing people Mm. around those things that got delivered, it just, it doesn't work. I was wrong. So I've actually changed my mind about simply delivering material benefits to people will somehow automatically lead people to become more progressive or join our movement or lead to a political realignment. Not true. We just lived through it the last two years. Mm. Um, So I was wrong. And I think we have to grapple with that. I think we have to grapple with that and what it means for our strategy as a movement and how for some of us, how we engage in terms of electoral politics, in terms of governing. I think we have to challenge our own assumptions and come up with some radically different strategies. Even if I believe, by the way, that the, objectively, we could have gone into a Great Depression. Like if you just run the clock back and do the, the counterfactual, what could have happened but for what Congress and the administration delivered? By the way, we, it was our folks that elected them, right? So I want to make sure we get credit, not them. So, you know, unemployment insurance, CTC, the stimulus checks, you know, there's like stuff that objectively... I think we have the lowest unemployment rate right now, even though not for black folk, because it's still double the white unemployment rate. But nonetheless, right, we could have imagined we'd be in a situation of unemployment at 25% for black people or something. You know what I mean? So objectively, the economy did get better. Costs are starting to come down with crazy inflation. All that's There's some objective things that are like, okay, we're moving in the right direction. It could have been much worse, but that doesn't mean that's how people interpret what has happened in their lives the last couple of years. I have so I have so much to say about this and we only have so much time, but we are fucking terrible at narrative. Mm. We're so bad at it. We're so bad at it. I mean, I I have to hold my nose in my own movement because I'd be like, who is we talking to? <laughs> mm. Who exactly is we talking to? Because I watch CNN and MSNBC all fucking day long. I literally switch between them. But I'm like, you know, regular people who are not political junkies, um, you're absolutely right, have not made the connection that something that they did, right, voting, voting for a particular candidate, voting for a particular candidate, said they were going to do a bunch of shit, and actually holding those people accountable got things that we needed to live better. And there is also, in terms of deliverism, there's an extremism, right? Mm, well, it wasn't so all the shit that, that I wanted, so it, it it failed. It's like, no, we have <laughs> we, we have to get it the fuck together because we are literally, we are in a spy balloon over the cliff. We've already gone off the cliff at Thank this you. point. We are in a spy balloon <laughs> and we're about to get shot down. That's literally what's about to happen. And I need to like, really understand this. And a bunch of us can't swim, okay? So look, we need to get it the fuck together. Woo, I knew I needed to talk to you <laughs> on today, Dorian Warren. Okay, so look. <laughs> Can I go back to your point? I just want because yes. I want to go back to your point on the bipartisanship 
Please. Because I mentioned January 6th a few minutes ago. It's not lost to me that the insurrectionists from January 6th and the movement behind them have more power now in Congress and in state houses around the country than they did on January 6th. And we're not having a fucking honest conversation about that. Mm-hmm. And if you just take a look at what, like, talk about a state house. Let's look at Florida and all the shit DeSantis is doing. Oh my Criminalizing God. protests, yeah. criminalizing speech, banning books, attacks on CRT, attacks on trans folks. Like, just, it's like the whole, it is actually intersectional in a right-wing way. Mm-hmm. He is going at all of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. And what is the actual fight back? What is the strategy, right? Like, I'm more interested not in bipartisanship. I'm more interested in what is the left's and progressive strategy of wedging the other side in this moment when the threats, and I don't want to be like, an, you know, a fear monger about all oh, the authoritarian threats, because listen, we had racial authoritarianism in the South from 1619 until 1965. So let's Hello. be really honest about that. But so it's always homegrown the authoritarianism. But I'm feeling in this moment, like, what the fuck are all of us doing? Because they're going Mm -hmm. (laughs) on their straight. And then, you know, you have the moderates and most Democrats who are too scared to take on critical race theory, the attacks Mm -hmm. against trans folks. Like, they're just too scared. Oh, if we just talk about economics over here, that'll stop. No, no. And in fact, we have more evidence, is my last point, We have more evidence. I just want to address this, that when you talk about racial justice explicitly, when you say Alicia Garza, Black Lives Matter, it actually benefits, frankly, the Democratic Party, but also the progressive movement. And I want to point out there's this important academic paper that came out a few weeks ago that shows in the precincts and counties where there were higher levels of protest in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, the places with the highest levels of protest in that summer in particular, they had something like three to five percentage higher turnout for voting in the November election. So the punchline of all that is actually when you talk about racial justice and you talk about Black Lives Mattering, it actually mobilizes more folks than you would have otherwise if you continue to do this race blind, race neutral bullshit that too many of us in our movement do. I have been wanting to talk to you for a hot minute, Dorian, because even though the headlines are absolutely chock full of shit that insiders care about, like the Chinese spy balloon, Trump's ongoing legal battles, classified documents in basically everybody's house, except for Obama, because we already know Black people don't play that shit. (laughs) We already know you motherfuckers try to disappear us when we ain't doing nothing. So no, I'm not going to have no damn classified documents in my motherfucking house. He probably gave up too much stuff, actually. (laughs) I mean, and they're even talking about Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster. But for the vast majority of the rest of us, we are thinking about how to make ends meet. In other words, it's the fucking economy. Mm-hmm. You are one of our like foremost scholars and thinkers and doers on how to make the economy a better place for all of us. So I need to ask you a question. Mm. What the fuck is going on with this shit? And why the hell are eggs $8? And why are groceries so damn expensive? And why does that matter? Mm. Okay. 
I'm going to get you back for this. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's actually not, you know, the way in which the discourse on the economy, the conversation in the economy, it's often people use jargon. People try to use words that other folks understand. And it's actually not that complicated. Here's why. To understand why eggs or baby formula, which affected me, or anything else, gas, was really expensive, it's actually kind of simple. Price gouging by powerful corporations. Baby. And nobody challenged them, and they can do whatever the fuck they want to do. And so they said, oh, you remember Rahm Emanuel and under, mm-hmm. under Obama said, never let a good crisis go to waste? That's exactly mm-hmm. what corporate America did. They were like, you know what? This isn't, you know, unlike, say, a previous romantic era of like, okay, we all have to sacrifice in World War II. We all have to sacrifice. There were price controls and- Rosie the Riveter. All that stuff, right? <laughs> and, and, and everybody had to pick. No, they were like, you know what? I don't care if people are dying in this pandemic. I'm about to get rich. And so I'm going to make the price of eggs go up from three, four dollars a carton to eight, nine, ten dollars a carton, especially for people that like fancy eggs. Baby. I'm going to make the price of gas go up. I'm going to make the price of pharmaceuticals go up. And nobody has challenged them. I mean, there's some bright spots. I'm thinking of Lena Khan, who's um, uh, she's a D.C regulator on the federal, what's called the Federal Trade Commission, I believe. There's some other folks who are trying to take them on. But for the most part, the short answer is corporate America was like, we're about to get paid and get a windfall. And so we're going to raise prices. Then there's one other thing I'll mention. A lot of people talk about the Federal Reserve. And it's a mystery to most of us. Like, what do they do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are these? So basically, they set interest rates, not only that affect us as individuals. How much would the interest be on a loan you take out? Is it 2%? Is it 10%? How much would the interest rate be on a mortgage you take out? And the, you know, again, to summarize, they set the interest rate for, say, government treasuries. That basically is the floor for banks in terms of how much they can set their interest rates. Mm-hmm. So whatever the Federal Reserve does, it affects the rest of the economy. They don't have accountability from ordinary people. They are insulated, in fact. Um, they're appointed by presidents, but then they have very long terms. So there's basically no way. It's not like they have public meetings, right? They just exist over here by themselves and decide what's good for the economy, even if they're wrong. Most of their decisions, I just want to emphasize this point. Most of their decisions are bad for black workers. Mm. Let me say that again. Most of their decisions are bad for black workers. Here's why. They keep raising interest rates to try to, quote unquote, get inflation down. And the risk of them increasing interest rates is that unemployment goes up. And what's important to understand about that is anytime unemployment goes up, it affects Black workers first. We're the canaries in the coal mine. And so, as I've said earlier, the Black unemployment rate, actually since the early 1970s, has always been twice the white unemployment rate. What's the old saying? When white America catches a cold, Black folks get pneumonia. That Mm -hmm. is basically how to understand the economy. And if you really want to understand the economy, maybe there's a different way in. Just look at where what's happening for Black women. They are actually the canaries in the coal mine of what's of the health of our both economy and democracy. And so, to answer your question and come full circle, what's happening in the economy right now is corporations are price gouging and raising prices with no accountability. This independent 
federal entity called the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates supposedly to get the economy back on track. But it's what's what's important to know it's on the back of black workers. So everybody else is benefiting potentially from on the backs of black workers in terms of higher unemployment, et cetera. And then third, I gotta say, Alicia, we kind of, I think as a movement, haven't built enough power to advance an alternative vision of what the economy should look like. Whether you are socialist, whether you are a liberal, I think this has been a moment where we've been that we've been living through since the pandemic that is sort of the breaking up of 40, 50 years of neoliberalism. That's another big word. Let me break that down. Neoliberalism basically means the market is God. The market can do no wrong. The hell with government. And so this is a moment when that something has happened the last couple of years where a few folks have said there's a different vision for an economy. Some people call it a solidarity economy. There's a different vision for how to the rules of the game for this economy, including what does corporate accountability look like? Or frankly, to go even further, what would it mean to demand from every corporation in America that they must, to be even chartered, to operate officially, they have to advance the public good in some way? And we're going to measure that and hold them accountable. Like, There's lots of ideas out there, but the punchline is we don't have the power yet to shape the economy like we should. Last point on this. You know who does have the power? That is a bright spot the last couple of years are workers who are organized together to call for a union, to demand a union, or to go on strike. So we are living in the midst, I think, of a worker upsurge and uprising over these last couple of years because people are fucking fed up and are like, no, we're not going to take this anymore. And so I do think that is the opportunity. And there's just a whole new generation of politicized folks around workers' rights, around the power of workers, the labor movement. We're in a different moment, I think, than, than when we were 20 years ago. We were coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, we were lone voices. Now there's just a whole new generation that's like, you know what? No, we're not going to take this. Mm-hmm. So like there's some bright spots up. there. <laughs> that was actually the best breakdown of what is going on that I have heard in a very long time. So well done, Dorian. Thank you so much. It got me thinking, though, because we haven't built the power that we need to, we have not generated the political will. Mm. And not having generated the political will means this. Those of us who are struggling, like really struggling to get by, uncertain about our future, uncertain about our ability to make ends meet, we are at the whim of people who their very existence on our representative bodies are fueled and funded by the same mm-hmm. interests we're asking them to regulate and rein in. And that is a part of why we have to focus not just on platitudes, mm-hmm. right? But policies and policies that rein corporations in are fucking good for everybody, except for the corporations, but we don't care about that. I want to talk about what I know we are going to hear the president be talking about for the next few months, really the next year, because for all intents and purposes, he's going to run again, Mm -hmm. which is the economy. He's going to talk about the debt ceiling. He's going to talk all the things about the middle class. 
I'm not even clear that we have a middle class in this country anymore, but right. Right. okay. But I just want to understand from your perspective, because through community change, you all are on the ground working with communities across the nation who are not just struggling, but are fighting to thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What really needs to be done to get the economy on track? And what kinds of things might we actually feel in our pockets? Like you talked about the child tax credit. Mm. I'm still talking about we need a stimmy until the pandemic mm-hmm. is over. And yes. not just when you say it's over, like when really like niggas is getting Rona, like we get in the flu. We're not there yet. And when niggas ain't dying from it, that's when it's over. So stimmies until then. But like what kinds of things like that would we actually feel in our pockets? Mm, let me give you a couple of examples. So as you said, we're going to hear a lot about, oh, this is the best economy, you know, in terms of jobs created and all the things. Objectively, yeah, probably true. But what, how did that happen? It's because, to be honest, we as a movement forced the Biden administration to be bolder than the Obama administration. Mm, I'm going to be mm. really clear about that because we got really short memories. Ain't that some shit? We had a whole <laughs> fight in the last decade. Some of us criticizing Obama and taking shit for it about how in the recession of 07, 08, 09, he wasn't bold enough. He had the wrong folks around him whispering in his ear. And so while many folks in white America recovered, for the whole decade of the 2010s, most Black folks never recovered economically. Now, I say that because I think one of the lessons of the Biden administration and, frankly, the pushing of movement folks, right, was like, go big, be bold. So we didn't get one STEMI. We got three. Mm. We got this expanded child tax credit where folks were like, oh, if you have a kid, you get $250, $300 a month. No strings attached. Now, think about that for a second because that was in the context of the 25th anniversary of so-called welfare reform when a Democratic president demonized, much like his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, poor Black women as welfare queens Mm, and mm. created punitive restrictions on cash assistance to people who need it. So in 2021, we basically said, you know what, if you're a parent, and especially if you're a parent of a Black or brown kid, we're going to give you cash and not ask you how to spend it. We're not going to ask you or restrict, unlike SNAP, we're not going to tell you which diapers you can buy. Or which milk and formula you can buy. Here's money. We trust <laughs> right. you. Here you go. Come on. That was like a momentary, I think, 180 turn away from 100 years of demonizing particularly poor Black women in terms of cash assistance from the government. That, all those three STEMIs, that child tax credit, unemployment insurance, when people get money, what do they fucking do? They spend it. That is why we didn't have a depression. Because we basically said, we're going to give you money Mm -hmm. to spend, to survive in this pandemic moment. And when you spend money, here's here's what I know. The child tax credit, for every dollar of the child tax credit, it created $8 in local businesses in terms of Mm -hmm. revenue they got. I love this. That's the number. That's the numbers. Right? So it was actually good policy and good politics, right? In some way. so, So one is we need to keep, I think... We need a permanent child tax credit. I'm an advocate, as you know, for a guaranteed income. uh, And I have lots of ideas about, particularly for Black folk, what that should look like. Um, I think we should get a little extra, frankly. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, But let's... uh, Reparations. (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you, sis. Exactly. Uh, so we have the ideas. We have the ideas. We don't have the political power, or political will. In terms of like, what is government policy to put money in people's pockets that also helps the economy? That's half of the equation. Here's the other half, Alicia. So it's the intersection of racial justice, voting rights, and economic justice. So in the state of Michigan, there is an attempt at voter suppression like we've seen all across the country in Georgia and Florida and other places. Mm-hmm. The right-wing extreme insurrectionist types were pushing that in the state of Michigan in 2021 in law last year. The governor vetoed it. They had a way to try to override the veto. So we got together with five Black-led grassroots groups on the ground in Michigan and said, y'all, what do you want to do about this? And they were like, we want to fight back. But it's not enough to, with all due respect to our friends and colleagues, Alicia, it's not enough to have a rally um, or a march. You ain't got a motherfucking tell me. Or or a march (laughs) and try to do the, you know, the moral shaming and stuff. Like, they were like, we need something else. So we essentially launched with our partners a corporate campaign. Um, I caught up our homie Rashad and got Color of Change involved too. Mm. And we did what we call a comprehensive strategic campaign. Who are the six corporations in the state of Michigan that are funding the extremist right-wing legislators on this voter suppression measure? And could we cut that funding off? Mm. Could we figure out a way? Because these are all companies, by the way. So I'm thinking GM and Ford. There's two energy companies. Blue Cross Blue Shield, this other company, Delta Dental, they all came out in 2020 and said Black Lives Matter. So did. And then Pocketbook, they're writing checks to vote suppressors in the Michigan legislature. So we were like, you know, we're going to call. No, 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 no. Long story short, we went at them in all sorts of ways. And one of the unexpected victories, the two energy companies that we targeted, they wanted a rate increase in the state of Michigan, even though they had record profits. And so to do that, they had to go before this little known utility commission in the state of Michigan that most people had never heard about. We organized folks, got them to the utility commission, said, you cannot give a rate increase when they, these two energy companies are funding voter suppression, right-wing extremists. For the first time, the utility commission had a public hearing, first time mm. ever, mm. first time ever on the rate hikes. We mobilized folks at that thing. And the decision ultimately of that commission was to deny 92% of the rate hike. So let me tell you what that means. We clawed back $350 million of an increase in working class and poor folks' pockets around paying their utility and energy bills. When, by the way, these two companies are the worst in the Midwest at delivering sustainable, reliable power. And so the point of the story is, yeah, there's things government can do, but also we have to we have to take on corporate power and fight corporations when they are not advancing our interests and they are price gouging us. And the punchline is when we fight, we can actually fucking win. Mm, baby. Dorian, while we were talking, I got an alert on my phone. You know, I get these breaking news alerts, which most of the time is not really fucking breaking news. But this one was, this one said, after Memphis officers beat Tyree Nichols, one of them shared a photo of him handcuffed and bloodied to at least five people, officials said. This is breaking news from the New York Times. 
Now, I just, and it's not breaking news to black people because we notice mm. shit. Mm-hmm. We, we know. <laughs> we know. This doesn't surprise me. I'm looking at this shit. I'm like, wow, y'all are shocked just like you were in 2020 that a man could stand on another man's neck on TV, look at the camera, say cheese, and then we would still have questions about whether we were going to even charge him, much less convict him. I just recently watched Colin Kaepernick's documentary called Killing County. Mm. It's very good. It's very, very good. And he is looking at police violence in Bakersfield. He's from that area, which is in Kern County, California. And Kern County apparently has the worst levels of police violence in the fucking country. Mm. It also happens to be the district that gives us Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. And when I tell you it made it make sense, I now understand. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) There's a lot in the documentary that we should be paying attention to. But the thing that I really honed in on was the settlements that are given to families who have had their loved ones murdered by police. Now, the documentary said that settlements, hundreds of thousands of dollars and sometimes millions of dollars, are not actually paid out from police departments themselves. No, that's right. They're paid by the taxpayers. So it seems to me, Dorian, that police violence is not just a fucking racial justice issue, and it's certainly not a moral issue because there is no morality in that. It's an economic issue, too. Mm. Do we see this kind of waste reflected in the budgets of cities and states? I mean, I think when people think about whether or not a city or a county or a state has money, you feel me? Mm. (laughs) Um, We're thinking about, you know, the overall budget and we're saying, okay, this goes to schools, this goes to firefighters, this goes to police, this goes to green space. But like... When I look at budgets across the country, there's like this huge piece of the pie graph that is for policing. And then the rest of the shit is for all the other things that people need. Mm, mm. So I I just I just want to hear you muse about that for a minute, because we talk about police violence like it's an interpersonal issue. Mm. But police violence is not just expensive in the sense that like people die. And we lose people that didn't deserve to die and that should be alive right now. But police violence is also expensive in the sense that, like, we are actually paying people to kill other people with no rules. (laughs) And then when we expose, oh, motherfucker, you wasn't supposed to kill him that way, (laughs) right? Then we end up paying for it. So the families who lose their loved ones actually end up paying themselves back. Mm. I'm just like sitting with that for a second. What is what is the economic impact of state violence? I don't. I, I don't even. I, I don't know if I we have an answer for this. Thought. I know. Well, since, I know. Okay. Let me, know. let me let me let me let me go here. Since it's breaking news around the cops showing pictures of how they brutalized Tyree Nichols in Memphis. So, you know, in January we all just supposedly celebrated Dr. King. And we know where Dr. King was April 4th, 1968. Mm-hmm. Memphis, Murdered baby. in Memphis to support public sector Black workers. So it's not lost on me that 55 years later, we're still grieving, actually. And we're also angry and infuriated that five or more Black public sector workers in Memphis mm. killed an unarmed Black man. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
But what was Dr. King talking about then? This is what we don't talk about in the birthday celebrations. Mm, come on. He was talking about the three evils, racism, capitalism, militarism. And I want to focus on the third of militarism because what you're, going, what you're pointing out is the cost of organized state violence. There's the cost in black lives. And then there is the economic cost. There's the social cost. There's the personal cost. And then there's the economic cost. And so I want to link the national, the military and national security, right, that we pay a whole bunch for. That's what Dr. King was critiquing and not just him, many others in the movement. Let me be clear about this. Because remember, he's in a context where the Johnson administration had lost the war on poverty and Dr. King was like organizing a poor people's movement and basically was saying, there's no way we're going to end poverty in America or abolish. I like to talk about abolishing mm-hmm. poverty because I'm an Come abolitionist on, on that too. <laughs> How do we abolish? We're never going to do that if we have a war economy. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was 68. We were talking about, well, we can't do the domestic stuff if we have this war machine, right? Okay, then let's go down to the local level in terms of organized state violence and policing. To your point, millions, if not billions of dollars are paid by taxpayers like you and me and our Mm. friends and families and everybody listening to the families of murdered victims by the police every single week, month, year. And no one is raising the question, why and how? And it infuriates me as the son, you know, from Chicago, I'm the son of a public school teacher. I went through public schools all the way through college. All were underfunded. Imagine what that money and police killing payouts could have gone towards then and now if we organized ourselves differently. And so what I want to suggest is why do we have these payouts from taxpayer money for police murders of innocent folk or just unarmed folk or regardless if they're innocent or not of just killing people? It's a question of political power. Mm. And we start, we have to start to ask the question, why do police unions have so much political power that they get a free pass from the rest of us. I like to say to my team, like you only win what you have the power to win. Mm-hmm. And clearly they've been winning for a long ass time. And we need a different kind of strategy, Alicia, to take on. It's a multifaceted problem. And, you know, to go back to what we just talked about, just the moral shaming ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. Like we have to think more strategically about how do we actually take away, how do we diminish the political power of police, the political power of police vis-a-vis ordinary black folk like me and you, right? Uh, and the people we love. Um, what is that strategy? And then to link it back, like you could say the same thing about, I don't know, Border Patrol. Mm. You could say the same thing, like whatever happened to Abolish ICE? You could say the same thing about organized state violence. And the policing, no matter whether it's in the, at the border, in Atlanta, in Chicago, in D.C., wherever it is, we need some different strategies to take on this challenge that's been with this fucking problem that's been with us since the founding, mm-hmm. right? Since the founding. And so last point on this, not only is it millions, if not billions of dollars in money that goes to police settlements when they kill folk. They actually financed that shit with police bonds. 
Baby. Like city's <laughs> finance, they know that. Damn, here's the thing. Here's what's crazy yeah. about this shit. Damn, they they sell bonds on Wall Street. They are police bonds, Alicia, because cities know that they're gonna have to do the paying out over five, ten, twenty, thirty years. So they have to finance it themselves using Wall Street because the is so much money. It's ins- It's like when you when you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you will get sick to your stomach and enraged by the system. This is a system. And so we need transformative system change around the problem of police and military violence in this country. And I don't have all the answers, let me just say. But that's where my brain goes. That's where my mind goes when you ask a really hard question like that. There's just so many elements to this. And it goes back to What do we do with organized state violence? What is our position? What's our strategy? And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't gonna do this week. Number one. Your former president threatens death and destruction if he's held accountable for all the dumb shit he did as president. Now, in today's episode of White People Can Get Away With Absolutely Anything, your former president, who once bragged that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in the middle of the day and get away with it, is now actually threatening to do exactly that. Get somebody hurt if anyone dares to actually hold him accountable for all the dumb fuck shit he's been up to since being elected president. Oh, you know, including paying hush money to a woman he fucked while he was married in order to keep her quiet about their rendezvous after he got elected as president. Now, any story involving this dude is just so fucking bizarre. But I just want to know, why is it that he's not already in jail? Oh, that's right. Because he's white. Other things Lady just ain't going to do this week. Well, what do you think about when you think of Waco, Texas? Now, speaking of your former president and that's about white, let's discuss the consequences of there being no consequences for this fuck shit. Now, this week we learned that Trump is indeed announcing that he's running for president again. And he's decided that the location of that announcement is going to be in Waco, Texas. Now, in case any of you listening right now are just too young to remember, in Waco, Texas, more than 20 years ago, a cult leader named David Koresh died in a bloody standoff with the United States government. What does David Koresh have to do with Donald Trump, you ask? Well, let's see here. Donald Trump is a type of cult leader with his followers willing to do basically anything and everything in his name. That's one similarity. Oh, the other one is that Donald Trump seems to also be in a somewhat of a standoff with the United States government, or at least threatening that he will be if anyone dares to hold him accountable for his crimes. Now, it's truly fascinating to me how far this has gotten. And not just fascinating, but dangerous. Let this have been Barack Obama. He most definitely would not have made it this far, honey. Other things Lady just ain't going to do this week is Uganda passing a bill that criminalizes being gay with jail or with death. So in today's episode of What the Fuck, Uganda has passed a new bill that criminalizes being gay, punishable by the death penalty in certain cases. Now, it's already illegal to be gay in Uganda, but apparently that wasn't enough. 
This bill makes identifying as gay illegal. And it requires that community members, including family members, report anybody in a same-sex marriage to authorities. Any individual or institution that publishes, broadcasts, or promotes pro-gay media material, oh, well, they also face prosecution and jail alongside other provisions. Now, the bill has not yet been signed by the Ugandan president, Yoweri Museveni, but many expect him to. Now, the bill was condemned by officials in the United States and in the UK, with the irony being, of course, that this bill is set up under the same premises as anti-trans legislation here in the U.S. They say it's to protect children. Same-sex relationships are banned in about 30 African countries. Other things we ain't going to do this week, Kemp signs Senate Bill 140 into law in Georgia, banning gender-affirming health care for trans youth. Now, before you go tisk-tisking about what they do in Africa, please do keep that same energy for the good old United States of America, where right here in Georgia, we deny gender-affirming health care to transgender youth. Just last week, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia signed Senate Bill 140, which bans certain gender-affirming care for minors. The bill bars licensed medical professionals, of which the governor is not one, from providing patients under the age of 18 with hormone therapy or surgery related to gender transition. Now, to do so might result in revoking their medical license. Now, all of this under the guise of protecting children. Unless, of course, it's young people who want or need gender-affirming care, to which Brian Kemp says, no health care for you. I got to move on because, y'all, my blood pressure is sky high. Okay, so let's talk about what Lady Loves this week. Number one, Kentucky governor vetoes a sweeping bill denying rights to trans people. Now, before you start running around talking about what they do in the South, let's just mark that fucking with trans people isn't a Southern thing any more than it's an African thing or any other way you might be trying to make sense of it. This 100% is a backlash thing from a party with what? No plan, no proposals, and no policy, remember. So let's discuss the courage of Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, who vetoed a bill that would have banned access to gender-affirming health care, restricted the bathrooms they can use, banned discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools, and this bill would have allowed teachers to refuse to refer to trans students by the pronouns that they use. Now, speaking of protecting children, Governor Bashir said the bill would have taken away parents' rights. Oh, you know, the actual people who are charged with caring for children. So both the Senate and the House in Kentucky are GOP majorities, which means it's possible for them to overturn the governor's veto. However, the point remains, it's not a Southern thing or an African thing. This is a conservative thing. And really and truly, I hate to say this because not all conservatives are for this garbage. However, there really is no denying that conservatives in this country have chosen to fight the culture wars rather than proving their theory that their way of life is better by, you know, actually making people's lives better. Other things Lady Loves this week, Paris is burning, literally. Now, baby, people in France are not playing any fucking games when it comes to their pensions. More than a million people have joined protests to express their opposition to French President Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms. 
which basically would raise the retirement age for most workers from 62 to 65. Now, baby, Macron done fucked around and found out because people been lit up for the better part of the last two weeks over this shit. They done set off smoke bombs at the airport, sat on the tracks at a Paris rail station, left garbage in the streets for more than a week, blocked traffic near the major airport, and they even fighting the police, child. Now, here's the issue underneath all this. The aging population in France, it's growing. And questions over how to pay for that are looming. So, the proposal? Their proposal? Make people work longer. Man, you really cannot make this shit up. Anyway, shout out to France. Turn up. Other news this week is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution gets its first Black editor in 150-plus years. Now, this piece of news sparked ladies' interest, and so we could not help but include it here, which is that for the first time in the paper's 155-year history, a leading newspaper in Georgia, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has appointed its first-ever Black editor, Leroy Chapman Jr. 155 years, child. Chapman has been a journalist for 28 years, and he's been with the AJC since 2011. Congratulations, Mr. Chapman. Show us what you can do. Welcome back to Ladies Love Notes, where we give you all of the real about being newly single and dating in your 40s. Now, we've got a good one for you this week as we continue the tales of what it's like on these here dating apps as a 42-year-old woman. This one's my favorite because we're asking the question of how much is just too damn much? All right, so Lady divulged in our last episode that she has joined the world of dating apps. And as I said prior, it is a fascinating experience. We've covered some of the basics in terms of the ins and outs of the apps. And where we left off was me telling you that I was going to give it a shot, which I am and I have. I've been meeting some people, you know, going out on dates and truth be told, It's been a minute since I've been on a date, honey. So be rusty. But in this new nation of I now go on dates, I present a most humbling dilemma that is quite new for me if I'm keeping it 100 fucking percent. So let's dive in. All right, y'all. So I meet this man one afternoon as I'm scrolling. He looks good. We have some similar interests. And so we start chatting. Off jump, he's funny, he's engaging. And this is a plus because really and truly, these men will how is your day you the fuck to death. Now, that's an episode for another time. But suffice it to say, some people have a hard time getting a meaningful sentence out. That's dating app life. In any case, after a few days of chatting, I'm like, all right, this guy's interesting. He likes to cook. He says he's good with his hands. He works a regular corporate job. I don't care. And has interesting things to say about himself and life. He asks me good questions. I like that he flirts, but it's not over the top. You know, normal shit. So we exchange numbers and we start chatting that way. And eventually we decide we're going to meet up in person. Now, leading up to the date, I'm going back to his profile and our chat and I'm looking for the red flags. Now, nothing jumps out at me right away. So I'm like, oh, good. And in any case, we agree to meet for a drink at a local watering hole. Now I figure we can have a drink and I'll see if I like it. If there's no there there, then I can leave and there's no pressure. I'm not stuck in a dinner, in a movie. I can get out. So the night comes and we link up. And I get there first, which is shocking because really I'd be running five minutes late like most of my life. He shows up shortly after me. And honey, he is fine, fine. Like better looking than his pick. I'm like, okay. 
So we order a drink and we get to talking. And he seems a little bit nervous, but I am too. And soon after, though, the conversation seems to flow nicely. And eventually we're laughing and we're talking and all the things. He tells me I'm pretty, which I find endearing. And he definitely is looking good to me. I mean, we're attracted to each other and it shows. I decide to stay for another drink. Now, the night goes on and it's definitely getting more and more flirty. Now, I can tell it's on if I want it to be. And seriously, I'm considering it. Long story short, we decide to end the night together. Before I get into the rest of the story, I do want to say how important consent is, okay? I did not feel pressured or too intoxicated to say yes, and I honestly felt like he was paying attention to all that. Now, it seems like a small thing in this world of what the fuck, but it's actually huge, even though it shouldn't be shocking. Anywho, I just needed to say that. And yeah, we get back to the house and instantly we start getting down to business. We had things to do. And this is when I learned that this man is a straight up freak. And I'm totally here for it. I mean, he's down for all kinds of shit. And I'm enjoying this because truth be told, some of these dudes out here just talk a big game, but they really can't deliver. But honey, he is delivering and I am delivered. And he proceeds to deliver for the better part of three hours before I have to tap out and say, mercy. (laughs) Three hours. Three. Around 5 a.m., I say, sir, I am indeed embarrassed to admit this, but I'm tapped out and I actually need to go to bed. (laughs) Now, usually my appetite is stronger than that of my counterpart. Ever since I turned 40, I swear to God, it's only increased. I once came 22 times in a night. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I have stamina. But this man met me and taught me literally and figuratively. Now, to his bewilderment, I walked his ass out at 5 a.m. And as I sat on my porch in my own bewilderment, I wondered, how much is too damn much? Now, I had the same question on my mind when I awoke the next day, or that same day, just a couple hours later. So I took my question to the trusted group chat, and I let the conversation commence. Now, seemingly, I had found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and yet, why did I feel like I'd just taken the bar exam without ever having attended law school? Child, the responses I received were absolutely hilarious. One of my girls said she had a similar experience, and then she just ended up ghosting the dude. Another one said her sleep was too damn important. After two hours, it's basically just masturbation at that point, she said. I was laughing. As I sat up in the bathtub recovering from my real-life rendition of the Freaky Tales, I mean, look, I had hickeys and shit. It was crazy. I recalled the episode where Samantha met a man with a huge penis, and after many attempts to conquer the mountain, she conceded defeat. She tried every which way, every other thing, and she was determined to prevail, and Samantha was a freak. This man was not Mount Everest in the same way. I mean, he was average, and I've definitely dealt with bigger. But baby... Never have I ever tapped out like that. But also, never have I ever fucked for three hours straight with no water, no breaks, no dozing off. And the only time I have straight up walked somebody the fuck out my bed and out my house was in fact when the sex was so bad, I just could not take it anymore. This child did not know what they were doing. Okay. So let me ask you, dear listeners, how much is just too damn much? I mean, have you ever encountered such a phenomenon? And if so... What did you do? How'd you handle it? I mean, is there like a special training program or something? I need to know. Sound off. Send your experiences to my grab bag so you and I can learn together. 
tell the people who are listening how they can follow you and your incredible work on the socials. I love you for asking me that. There's a lot of great people to follow, honestly. And mostly they're the folk whose names we don't know at the local grassroots level. So I would say instead of following me, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, probably as the at Dorian Warren. But honestly, look around, do some research, use a search engine. I don't want to mention any brand names. Use okay, search engine. Fuck these people. <laughs> people doing shit locally. Like have those conversations in the barbershops and beauty salons and yeah, if you're online on TikTok or like, I want you to find some local folk to follow mm. and to engage mm. with because where you are rooted in your in the place in which you live is, I think, where you can have the most amount of impact. And so, I just want to encourage people to find your local leaders or become one yourself, and you know, follow Alicia because she and read her book because. Your book tells us all how to organize, right? So that's what I would say. Like, if you can't find somebody local, read Alicia's book and then start your own organization. I'll be trying. Read the damn book, y'all. <laughs> Dorian, as always, it is a deep pleasure and an honor. Thank you for being on the pod today. Thank you for having me, Alicia Garza. I hope you have me back one day. Now that's it for Lady Don't Take No. But, 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 I will be back here next week with a brand new conversation and some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us and please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind, tell us what you like, and tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. And we're also on Meta or Facebook or whatever we're doing over there these days at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. Of course, we really appreciate it when you subscribe, subscribe, and write us a review. Let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is by Latirix. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me, I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, your former president wants to burn the whole thing down. And even though this may be like, I don't know, most of his bullshit, which is like more bark than bite, it certainly shows us a lot about the cracks in the foundation. It is actually possible to do the right thing and not target people based on some bullshit smokescreen related to children or morality. And imagine what would happen if people in the United States were turned up like the people in France when politicians try to take away rights and safety nets. Just food for thought. Oh, and also don't forget to weigh in on this week's Ladies Love Notes topic. Remember, how much is just too damn much? Click the link in our bio on Instagram to sound off and give us your tips on how you handle the rare Energizer bunnies that are out there and that we are gifted with. Now that's right, I said it, because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no, she insists on respect the sister, walk around like a woman -ish. She won't speak, less it's something worse, saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously, people stare curiously. Got a natural way, her hips way furious. Mega luxurious. Love y'all.